You're listening to the You Mentor Talk Show. I'm your host, Fatima Al-Sayed. On this weekly talk show, we usually invite experts to take us through their journeys as professionals in their fields. Remember, if you have any questions for our panelists, you can always leave them in the comments section during the show, or questions can be asked beforehand on the Emoja app, um, Inspire, or directly on YouTube. On today's show, we welcome Abir Safa. Abir is a Detroit-raised poet of nine years. She began performing her work in 2012 at various events and centers across the U.S. and U.K. and in Africa. Her work aims to ignite the flame in the hearts of the lovers of the Ahlul Bayt, alayhim salam. In recent years, she has extended her work to contemporary issues relevant to all people of all faith, beliefs, and backgrounds. Um, Salam alaikum, Abir. I'd like to welcome her on. Wa alaikum salam. How are you? I'm good, alhamdulillah. How are you? Good, doing well. Um, we're very uh, excited to have you on the show. You're going to give us a very different perspective, not just on being, I think, a student, but also being a mother and trying to juggle everything um, together. So that's uh, a very unique um a unique experience that we haven't had on the show too much before, but everyone, you know, every mother goes through. Right. right. Um, so can you start off by telling us a little bit about um, your school history? So your educational background, and then we'll go from there. Um, so my educational background isn't very interesting. Um, I graduated high school, didn't ever go into an actual academic degree, but I do plan on eventually just not right now. Um, but right now I'm really focusing on Hausa studies and Islamic studies because it is something that I truly am passionate about and it's something that I've wanted to do for years ever since I was a teenager. So I'm putting all of my effort into that at the moment. But I do eventually would like to get maybe a literature degree, but we'll see where that goes. Also just wanted to say, I think anyone who's seen your background says that it's beautiful. It's oh, gorgeous. You. <laughs> um, what got you into Hausa studies? Were you always passionate about uh, religion? Um, no, actually. <laughs> um, I I don't think anyone, or anyone I know at least, you know, growing up was ever like really passionate about religion, you know. Mm-hmm. For Muslims who kind of grew up in, you know, like a religious household, you kind of were just brought up with it and didn't really think much of it. Or that's how it was for me anyways. But I feel when you get to a specific age, you really start to question yourself and your identity and you're trying to grow up and trying to find out who you are. You know, that million dollar question of who am I? What type of person do I want to be? And my father actually went on a Hajj trip. And when he came back and he was just telling us, you know, about his trip and how beautiful it was. And there's a specific aura that people who return from Hajj have. And I feel that his story really inspired me. And I, you know, he went through so much in Hajj, you know, the physical and the emotional and the spiritual. It made me interested, you know, I was like, okay, well, I follow this religion and like, you know, we pray, we fast, we wear the hijab and all of that, but it's like, why am I doing that? So that's when I really started to research more about my religion. And the more I started researching, the more I realized I have a love of research about religion and not just Islam, but just theology in general really interests me, whether it be Christianity or Islam or any other belief system. It's really interesting to me. There's something crucial that you said there um, that, you know, we follow this religion, but we're not sure why we're not sure why we do all of these practices sometimes. Um, What advice do you have for youth who are feeling like that? Um, It's a good question. And first and foremost, I don't want any youth to feel that 
there's something wrong with them for feeling that way. You know, if you're feeling that way, it's a good sign. You know, it's a good start to finally make that move to understand your religion more, understand what is truly religion and what is more cultural. You know, especially us who have grown up with ethnic backgrounds, whether we're Arab or Pakistani or whatever background we come from, there's a lot of cultural influence in our Islamic understanding. Mm -hmm. So getting that out of the way first and foremost, because culture really has tainted our view and perspective of religion. And I remember, you know, navigating the waters of uh, women in Islam. Um, because I saw some cultural things I wasn't really comfortable with and it didn't make sense to me. It kind of um, degraded the woman and made her, made me feel as a woman myself that I was supposed to fit a specific role and that this role was, you know, the stereotypical uneducated woman, etc. But mm -hmm. when I was looking into Islam and what Islam was saying about that and how Islam gave women the you know, the right to be an educator and to get education and to be more than what society makes us out to seem. Um, it really, really uh, grew my perspective of religion. And that was my biggest doubt about religion. So to all the youth who are kind of doubting their religion or where they come from or why we believe certain things, research it. And don't stop with, if you're not content with the answer that you've received, you know, speak to um, different scholars, read different books from different perspectives of Islam and Shia Islam, um, and try to understand the fatawa of your marja, you know, mm -hmm. um, why why is this haram, why is this halal, but also the spiritual benefits. For me, personally, I really enjoy um, understanding the spiritual benefits, like, yes, this is haram, yes, this is halal, but I want to know why, mm -hmm. and how it truly impacts our soul in our everyday lives. And it's not just black and white halal, it's haram. There, there are um, benefits to everything that we do in Islam. And modern science and technology are, is just now starting to figure that out. So there's just so many different perspectives, but you need to find that perspective that suits you most and what you're really looking for and what you're doubting. It's so interesting, um, the way that you pose it. Um, you know, there's always, it's usually this is haram and that's it you know it's it's a closed um you can't ask questions you can't go back and forth so um it's great that you bring it up in that perspective um so going a little into your poetry uh can you tell us uh how you started uh what what was the first like point that sparked that poetry within you um yeah so it would probably um, goes back to that Hajj trip that I mentioned earlier when my father, because he was my the first person in my family to go to Hajj or anyone I knew personally to make the trip. Mm -hmm. So um, obviously when I was younger, I was always a lover of literature. I loved to read. I was such a bookworm. I loved writing. I always used to keep journals everywhere. Um, I remember when I was younger, um, whenever my mom would put us to sleep, I would, you know, be under the blankets with the book light and like trying to read and come into the room, I put it under my pillow, trying to hide it. You know, mm -hmm. I really, really loved reading and writing, but I didn't ever take it seriously until that trip when I decided that I wanted to take my religion seriously. And I started to research a bit more. And obviously the Ahlul Bayt and the lives of the Ahlul Bayt salam, plays a huge role in our theology and our beliefs and our relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So I remember reading a book about um, the tragedy of Karbala. And obviously, yeah, I've heard the tragedies that happened in Majalis when we were growing up and at Islamic centers and mosques and all of that. But 
you know, unfortunately I was there because we had to be there because our parents took us. Mm -hmm. um, so I never really made that connection, but I remember coming across this book and it was called Journey to Journey of Tears or Journey to Tears, something like that. Um, and it's a really thin book, but it's, it was so beautiful, especially for uh, my age at that time and what I was going through. It really developed a personal connection with myself and the Ahlul Bayt because I was able to connect to the youth of Karbala. I was able to connect to every single personality, even Imam al Hussein, even though he was, you know, older and at a different phase of his life than I was at the time. But it was something. Um, that was so beautiful to me and it was the first time I truly felt that I made that connection on my own and mm -hmm. it wasn't something you know that like you see your parents do or people around you um, and I remember after reading that I just wanted to you know this this love of the Ahlul was so overwhelming it's like when you find a good recipe for food and you kind of want to tell everyone about it and you're like look how amazing this pasta recipe is and then you're telling everyone because it's just so good so that's how I felt. I know that's weird to compare it, but it was true. It's oh, like you have sense. something that you love so much and you're like so overwhelmed with that love and you think it's the most mm -hmm. amazing thing in the world, you kind of want to share it. And my natural um, expression is writing. Like that's the only way I know how to express myself. So I decided to write poetry and I never mm -hmm. thought I would. It's not something I ever envisioned as a child that poetry would shape my life in the way that it has. Um, I liked poetry and I liked to write it. I would write it in school, but I never took it seriously. Mm -hmm. But subhanAllah, that was just the way that I expressed my love. And then when I was, you know, started getting into it and was like researching spoken word poetry and all of that, I would see it on YouTube and having all of these poetry slams. I would search for, you know, like Islamic poems or Islamic um, spoken words. And they were very, very few. And um, majority of them were not for like the Shia school of thought and I was like, well, we have this beautiful tragedy that is so poetic and, you know, you want to express it through poetry and there was nothing available. So I remember I started writing and uh, I would post some videos on YouTube and I would um, call some of my centers, you know, mosques and stuff and ask them if I could say my poetry just before the program. And that's really how it started. Was it, so at the time, this was something that was completely new, right? There wasn't much mm -hmm. like... English uh, poets about uh, these like specific Islamic topics. So was it taken in a positive way by different um, mosques or community centers that you called? And was it an intimidating process for you? So the, the concept of poetry like of itself was not the issue. It was more so, you know, being a sister and a female in mixed crowds. That was the issue because it was unheard of. I remember there was a brother in our community who was probably the first spoken word artist I was exposed to within the Shia community who still recites poetry today. And mashallah is amazing. Um, so that was widely accepted and it was new and it was you know a different perspective and something that connected the youth. Um, and I just remember growing up thinking you know there weren't a lot of female scholars, there weren't a lot of female speakers generally. And I think that was a huge part into why I felt so disconnected from the Shia community mm -hmm. and just from the Islamic and religious atmosphere generally, because there was lack of representation. So when I started poetry and, um, you know, I, it's just my natural outlet, like, okay, you write a poem, you can't not read it. You need to, you know, people need to hear mm -hmm. what you wrote. So the mosques themselves never really had an issue. It was more so the crowd, you know, some people would come mm -hmm. up to you after and, 
kind of tell you like what are you doing you know this is haram or sometimes you know like on social media social media was starting to become more of a thing than you would hear a few comments here and there but um you know those comments yeah they hurt but like when you check with your manager and you realize what you're doing is not haram so long as you're following specific things that they ask you to you kind of uh, grow a thicker skin and just mm -hmm. like okay but that's your lack of understanding i'm not the one doing something wrong yeah and it's interesting because it comes back to that uh, cultural uh, thing that you exactly. mentioned before, yeah. right? And I experienced uh, something similar as well, you know, um, having these kinds of experience. I think a lot of girls can relate. Um, mm. If you are a writer and you write something beautiful, I wrote something about, I think it was for speech arts, and I wrote something about um, Sayyidah Fatima Zahra salam and about her hijab and how, you know, I made a correlation between her hijab and modern day society and how we can uh, apply it. And I was in, I think, grade nine at the time, or no, grade, grade eight or seven or eight. Mm -hmm. um, and I had, to, I was going to go up and say the speech during Ashura. And I was told right before I was going to go up, I was told, no, the men don't agree. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so this was something that was like, um, something that changed my perspective. Uh, and then I went back to my father and I asked, and he's like, no, this is not correct. Like, this is not Islam. This is not how we should be treating others, right? Right. Um, so having those positive uh, figures in your life as well changes your perspective and shapes it. Um, definitely, definitely. It's, it's a shame because I feel when we speak about figures like Sayyidah Fatima alayhi salam and Sayyidah Zainab and Sayyidah Khadija and all of these beautiful, wonderful, amazing female figures that can pull our youth sisters in mm -hmm. um, by presenting other sisters who are inspired by such wonderful ladies. I feel that we missed okay. that opportunity due to our cultural perspective of what and where women should be within mm -hmm. the community. And it's very unfortunate because in a sense, we play a huge role in uh, the corruption of some of our sisters, unfortunately. Yeah. But here we are, alhamdulillah. Yeah. So. <laughs> We've come a long way, I would say, but we still have a lot more work. Yeah. Exactly. Um, is it nerve-wracking for you to share your poetry, go up on stage? And what advice do you have for um, someone who is writing and is so passionate but has that stage fright? I think it's natural for any speaker, whether you've been doing it for years or you know have been doing it for a single day, to feel the initial sense of nerves overtake you right before you're about to go up on stage and speak. Generally speaking, for me personally, I've never really had stage fright I've, mm -hmm. I've really been comfortable I don't know I just it's, it's easier for me to speak to a crowd of people because um I just don't view them as people it <laughs> seems like you know a general group of people but if I'm speaking with two or three people I find that personally more nerve-wracking so mm -hmm. it's really up to the person like if if public speaking is something that you really fear and it's something that really makes you nervous. The only way to overcome it is the typical and stereotypical way of facing your fear. After some time, you are going to feel less nervous. You'll feel more comfortable. Um, and something that really helps me as well is re-watching my recordings. Because mm -hmm. sometimes when you're on stage and like all of the nerves are like on you and stuff and everyone's looking at you and you kind of get sidetracked, but then after when you're calm and you're not as nervous, you can kind of focus on what you said and how you said it. And, you know, if you needed to slow down a bit, I remember when I was first start, I would speak really, really quickly. Mm -hmm. um, even though I, you know, wasn't really nervous, but it was a nervous habit, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
um, yeah, so just analyze yourself, take a deep breath, you know, the beautiful dua and the, the verse of the Holy Quran, is probably the best dua that you can make before because it truly, truly helps and makes you feel so eloquent. And the words will just slip off of your tongue. The nerves, I think in a way it's good to be nervous because then we are aware of the huge weight and authority that we have being on the, the podium and that we are held accountable to everything that we say and that we influence. So trying to get over that, I don't think it should, you should 100% be comfortable because, mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of like when you sin, you know, they say that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is, you know, it's a level of iman and mercy that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala instills within you when you feel guilty after you sin. So I feel like it's the same um, concept for me anyways, to feel a bit nervous because it's, it's a, it's a heavy position. It's, it's almost a burden in a way because you are influencing people. So yeah. don't be scared of that nervousness. Allow it to empower you and just keep doing what you're doing and be analytical of yourself and see how you can improve and use, um, you know, modern technology with recordings and stuff to be better. And then that way, when you practice <laughs> before you go up, you'll, you know, be a bit more confident. But if you're going up without any preparation, yeah, you are going to be a bit more nervous than you usually would if you prepared mm -hmm. for it. So yeah, that's my two cents. What tangible steps would you suggest for someone who's trying to pursue their passion, but that passion or profession is not one that necessarily makes them an income? Right. And this is often the case with more artistic jobs mm -hmm. and career paths. You probably won't become a millionaire being a poet. You know, you have to face that reality. Um, but if it's something that you're truly passionate about, you have to be practical and realistic about it, that you will probably have to work a maybe nine to five job that you're not entirely satisfied with in order to kind of build yourself up as a poet or an artist or, you know, like a freelance um, artist or whatever you want to do that is within the artistic field or low income field. Um, it is a sacrifice and that not a lot of people are successful with it. And that is just the reality. It's not pessimistic pessimistic thinking, but it's the reality of that field in that career. So are you going to be a millionaire trying to be an artist or a painter? Probably not. But if it's something that you truly enjoy, even if you don't make income with it, I know this is going to sound kind of superficial, but really not superficial, but like not realistic, but it's, it kind of is at the same time is that, you know, if you're passionate about it and it's something that really truly brings you joy, I will I would hope that it's worth the sacrifice, but there will always be sacrifices in your career path. Um, trying to understand your audience is a great way to kind of increase your income in your career path. So for example, if you're going to be an artist and you're going to be selling paintings, you probably don't want to sell um, to people or kind of target people who are more into digital work. Mm -hmm. So you really need to know your art, your, your audience in order to kind of flourish more so than if you're just kind of introducing it to everyone. So making connections and understanding, um, kind of creating a more social circle in terms of work and, you know, taking those practical steps to grow yourself. But while all the while understanding that, yeah, you're not, it's going to take a few years and you're going to have to take, um, you know, some steps that are not the best like working a job that you may not enjoy mm -hmm. um, but it is a work in progress and it might take you so much longer than someone who's doing a more um, 
you know, straightforward um, career like being a doctor or an engineer or something that has higher demand. So it's really just trying to come to terms with that and not have these false expectations and like unrealistic expectations because I feel um, a lot of times that is what stops artists from doing what they love. Um, it's like after years of hard work, they then they come to that realization. But no, if you have that realization from the beginning, you should remain hopeful that, yeah, eventually that you will make it eventually, but it's just going to take some time. Mm -hmm. um, oftentimes within our society or our community, uh, there it always comes down to the choice between your career path and your mm -hmm. children um, or being a mother and raising uh, your kids. Uh, can you tell us from your experience, uh, you know, studying, because you started your house of studies after having your son. Mm. Um, so what was that experience like? And what advice do you have for uh, women who do have children and are trying to pursue something? This is something I went back and forth with myself all the time about. And it's kind of daunting to see other people, um, both men and women alike, to kind of finish their goals quicker than you because you have the responsibility of children. And that doesn't mean you think that your children are burdens. No, subhanAllah, never. But the reality of motherhood and while also balancing a career and education and whatever hobby or thing that you want to do while being a mother, yeah, it's going to take you longer. And that is just the reality of it. You, mm -hmm. you have to prioritize being a mother before you prioritize being a writer or a poet or a doctor or whatever you want to pursue. Um, and, if, and for me, being a mother will teach me and has taught me more than 10 years of Hausa. Mm -hmm. Because everything that I learned in my couple of years of um, studying has I had to practically apply it. And practically applying what you know is so much harder than trying to memorize all of the lessons that you learn or all of the lectures that you listen to and take notes to. Um, it's just trying to understand that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's reward for women um, and mothers is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And at the end of the day, you're impacting someone else's life. And how much you give into your child is how much they will give into the world and their own children. And, you know, if we're thinking about our careers, we can't think about what I personally want to accomplish in my career. We need to think, how can I impact the world the most? And through motherhood, you are impacting the world the most because you are creating children who fear God, who, you know, hopefully have good morals and have good principles and have a wants and practices set make change in their societies and to hopefully um, raise their children better than we've raised our own children, just like our parents mm -hmm. would have raised us better than their parents have raised them and so on mm -hmm. and so forth. So whatever you do as a career and whatever you do as a mother is not just about you and your kids. It's not just about you and your career and how you grow in your career. No, it's not about that. It's not as selfish as that you know understanding mm -hmm. that being a mother and balancing a career you're giving all of what you possibly can and all of yourself into society for hopes of a better community and a hopes of a better world and better um, people to live and establish that world that we wish that we had mm -hmm. um, so yeah it's going to be hard and it was a hard thing to kind of it was a hard pill to swallow yeah mm -hmm. to see that everyone was like okay 
you know, I'm not someone to compare myself, but it is hard, especially being a first time mom to see that everyone's chasing their careers and they're, you know, finishing it within like a couple of years and you're still on your first year of studies when, you know, your career path is generally a long, you know, takes a long time to finish, mm -hmm. but that's okay because it gives you time to practically apply what you learn and motherhood is grueling and it's hard but it's beautiful and it teaches you more than any textbook could ever teach you and more than any career can ever teach you something interesting a uh, quote that you said uh, during our pre-interview is use motherhood as a tool for enlightenment mm. um, and you were linking this back to religion so how can someone do so oftentimes we when we want to be more spiritual or we want mm -hmm. to grow closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we chase the spiritual goodness. And what I mean by that is the spiritual pleasure that we receive by reciting beautiful uh, melodies and beautiful du'as like du'a kumayn or du'a nudza. We kind of chase that euphoric feeling of feeling like we're closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And yes, all of these things are beautiful and are a means of growing closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but spirituality and enlightenment is not just limited to that. And we fool mm -hmm. ourselves sometimes to feel that way because almost every new mother I've spoken to and every mother I have spoken to, and even myself, I felt this way. When you become a new mother and you don't have time to pray your daily prayers on time because you know the second you wanna go pray, one of your kids is crying or your baby is crying or something happens, you're not able to indulge in jihad as much as you want. And that is the reality of it. You know, you're sleep deprived, especially within the first few months. Um, you barely have time to make food for yourself. You barely have mm -hmm. time to do the basic things around the house, um, let alone to go to jihad kumain every Thursday or go to Friday prayer every Friday. Maybe when they're a bit older, it gets a bit easier. But in those beginning months, it's so difficult, especially when the baby and the child is so reliant on the mother. Mm -hmm. I would say the first five years is the most crucial point of a child's life because they are entirely reliant on the mom and they learn and 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 um, take so much from the mom from every aspect of life. So sometimes we kind of fool ourselves to believe that growing closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is feeling good and feeling good in these du'as and feeling good in all of that. But mm -hmm. truly and wholeheartedly, enlightenment and growing closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and, and reaching true enlightenment is through the hard things. And hard things being, um, you know, sacrificing going out with your friends maybe to take care of your child. Mm -hmm. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that is the best spiritual act that you can possibly do to sacrifice your sleep so you can feed your child in the middle of the night. These are things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has described for us and the imma have described for us as the most spiritually growing things and the most spiritually nurturing things um, that we have. And yes, they don't feel spiritual, but maybe it's because we're chasing that feeling of spirituality rather than chasing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself. Mm -hmm. And that's a huge distinction to make. So when I say that motherhood is very practical in the sense of it makes you practice your faith practically because when you're, you know, you need to be patient with your kids. You know, we all love to say, oh, God loves the patient, but how patient are we really, mm -hmm. you know? So when you really feel like you want to, you know, yell at the top of your lungs when your kid has spilled, you know, paint all over the walls, but no, now is, <laughs> yeah, now is when you need to take a step back and realize that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala loves the patience. And how am I going to apply the patience? Because listen, it's easy to say, okay, we'll pray your prayers on time. 
okay, to be a good Muslim, you know, mm-hmm. read the Quran, it's easy. Okay, but if you do all of that, and if you spend all of your life reading and learning about Islam, that's still not enough if you're not practically applying it and acting upon what you know. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a quote, I don't remember exactly where, but to paraphrase, that, um, you know, a scholar who, who studies for years and years and years, but doesn't you know, practically apply what he's learned is a useless scholar because mm-hmm. the point of that knowledge is to help you grow and, and you to know, gain that experience. into action, right? Mm-hmm. And then someone who maybe may not know a lot but practices everything he knows is more worthy than that scholar who has spent 10 years of his life learning. Mm-hmm. So that's something as mothers, and even if you're not a mother, you know, sometimes we have um, other situations in our lives that are difficult. Like if you're a uni student and you have to like travel, like, you know, your commute or round trip is like four hours, you know, that's the, that's your jihad for that, mm-hmm. for that season of life. You know, if you're um, a child who is living under parents who are very cultural or don't understand you or, or are very hard to please, that's your jihad for that season of life. Mm-hmm. So, you know, applying that patience and applying what you know in those situations, whether it be motherhood or whatever, is more important than how much you know. And more important than feeling spiritual because that feeling is temporary, whereas reaching Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala truly is not. In the last minute, um, can you tell us a little bit about where you hope to go, um, what your future plans are, inshallah? So my future plans, inshallah, inshallah, if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives me the tawfiq. Um, since I was younger, um, as I said, I was never envisioning myself with poetry. I do enjoy poetry. But for me personally, I enjoy storytelling and I enjoy novels um, Mm -hmm. more so than poetry. That is a path I'm, you know, taking some steps to take. And inshallah, hopefully within the new future or near future um, will be, you know, established into reality with your du'as and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's tawfiq. I think, um, you know, using literature to bring our youth closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and our youth ranges from teens until like 30 plus years old I don't mean just like children I mean like that whole spectrum of youth because even when you're 30 years old you still need something to tie you into Islam and bring you closer to Islam especially living in such harsh harsh societies that is kind of pushing us to leave everything um, leave Islam and, and go chase everything so what I hope to do is um, bring um, literature true proxy literature into the Shia community and kind of, um, how can I say this? To um, give us an alternative to normal books and all the while allowing us to kind of enjoy books and reading, you know, fictional novels and all in fictional stories, but still gaining practical lessons that we can apply in our day-to-day life. Not sure if I summarized that very well, but that is the plan, inshallah. Mm -hmm. Inshallah. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. Um, time runs out so fast <laughs> when you're having good conversation. It Thank really you so much. Um, just wanted to let everyone know that you can tune in every week on YouTube live to hear all of our future shows. Next week's show is going to be uh, a community voice show with uh, MYM. And if you have any questions for our current speaker or prior speakers, please check out the Inspire platform on the Emoja app. You were just listening to the Umenter Talk Show. A few minutes. This or future shows, you can always hear the replay on the Umenter website under prior talk shows. Moja Outreach Foundation, uniting and empowering the Shia community.